0: Hello, I am Dr. Kathleen Hall, and this is The Way I See It. Today, on The Way I See It, I would love to talk to you about maybe, just maybe, you want to drink your life deeply. I want you to just stop for a second and think of what it tastes like when you're hot and sweaty and dry and You pick up a cool glass of water and you slowly drink it and what it feels like. Don't you want to drink your life deeply? It's such a beautiful, beautiful metaphor. Because drinking your life very deeply means developing a perspective on your own life that's broader and deeper than the shallow, mundane lives that so many people, and I hate to say this, but I think most people are living in our world today. But in that imagination of yours, I want you to imagine going to a lake, or if you prefer, a beautiful, beautiful ocean. Put your toe in, and it's shallow. Go up to your knees, it's shallow. And you may be a little afraid because of the vastness and the depth in front of you to go deeper. It takes bravery and courage and curiosity to go deeper, not only in the ocean, the water ocean, but the ocean of your life. But oh, the riches that are available in the depths. Look at the divers and researchers that swim into the depths of the ocean that you see on television. The magic and the mystery they experience. Don't you want to taste a little bit of that magic? All you lack in this hurried, speedy world is your awareness and your will and your discipline to learn new practices, to slow down your life before your life leaves you, before you die. We must love our life, not dread it. But the problem is so many of us go from one personal prison to another, whether it's clothes, one dress that's going to make us thinner, a diet that's going to make us thinner, uh, 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 some new uh, filter that changes the way we look on our social media, whether it's planning to go back and get one more degree, one more class, something to change us. We head from one personal prison to another, or changing somebody new we love or a new friend that's going to change us a new class yeah it's not that we don't have time for important things in life we don't take the time for the most important things in our life in our present world we live breathing that we miss breathing the natural rhythm of life we miss it we miss a framework of life that makes us you know live makes us Breathe makes us know, and we don't have a rhythm with technology, with our hurried life, with news 24-7. We destroy the framework of life, and we make life into one eternal day, and it's killing us. This 24-hour life is killing us. The fight-and-flight response that's activated by the chronic news, chronic information, chronic connection is over and over again stimulating that fight-and-flight response, which has organic, as you well know, biological inferences, meaning our blood pressure, our heart rate, our SED rate, our coagulation rate in our body, everything changes. Our neurobiology changes, fight-and-flight. And little by little, things go dry within us, and before we know it, we're a dry desert. Living becomes ho-hum rather than magnificent and enlivening and and, and mysterious. So, I lived this way many, 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 many years. And something changed. My own answer to the current world's madness was and is kind of transforming and becoming an urban monk. An urban monk. Is that a new term for you? An urban monk. It, It means... Changing your life so that in the cities or in the communities we live, we create our own little monastic community. And you, that, this may be a foreign concept, so hold on with me. I'm going to explain what I'm talking about. Because my life was transformed. My life was saved by incredible monastic experiences. Now, I've had a very long, extensive experience with monasticism, both traditional monastic life, and also living an urban monastic life myself. My mother's family was Irish Catholic since forever, and I grew up in a Catholic church, attended Catholic schools, so I was born and bred around a monastic community. My teachers were many flavors of monastics as I grew up, and I was immersed and exposed to different traditions, okay? And for those of you that don't know, being a monastic is, is... is in every religion, Sufism, Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism, you know, all the major religions and theologies, Buddhism, and just like the Christian Catholic Church. So I grew up in one that there were Benedictines, which is one, like think of it as Baskin-Robbins. One was Benedictine, one was Dominican, one group, one was Franciscan, Jesuit, Cistercians, Trappists, and the list goes on. So I was educated by all these various traditions. So they were all fascinating and very different. And all I remember is these people were brilliant, and they were so filled with love. Instead of what you might think of stern or critical, they were so loving, so curious, and so amazingly brilliant. And each of these groups now, their take on life was very different. So growing up, it was very fascinating. It made me very curious. I actually left the church, the Catholic Church, many decades ago. But the discipline and ritual of growing up in a monastic community is still my taproot. Then I went on later in life, and I taught early church history at Emory, Emory University. I was a professor of world religions at another university. So I became fascinated with all the brilliant people, philosophies, the books, the manuscripts that were written in these, you know, thousand centuries, centuries old places And these very cool, cool, eccentric people were doing all this work. I thought they were just, you know, boring religious people. Uh Uh-uh, quite the opposite. Um, These people I I taught were fully alive, awake, grateful. They lived in wonder and awe every day. I was like, this is the life I want. But I'm married. I have two children. I don't want to be celibate and live in a community like that. But there was a spiritual foundation and it was rooted in a mindful life. It was rooted in mindfulness at its core. Because mindfulness sees everything as one. Everything speaks of the divine of God. Mindfulness is the sacredness of time. And mindfulness is, becomes a very different way to be in life because time is the guardian of life, right? If we weren't going to born and be born and die and have diseases and challenges and all the things that happen to us, Why would time be so precious? Because time is the guardian of our life. Think about it. And these monastic communities over many centuries have learned to have reverent respect for time, sacredness for every moment, every minute, every breath of our lives. And in monastic life, we have a rhythm. They wake up with a prayer, they eat in communion together, then they work, then there is time in the afternoon for study, at least several hours a day, goes to reading, studying, learning. Then there's rest and leisure time, of course, and then there's service. So when I went to these communities and I grew up in them, I went, "Wow. Do you, you know, they actually invest in their minds for sacred times to learn, to study, to rest and have total leisure, to eat, to celebrate, to serve?" I went, How did I lose my way with my kids and my hysteria and my husband and us leaving stickums on the refrigerator? But prayer, meditation, mindfulness, always aware of the presence of God in your life, always. And prayer is the conscious and awarenessness of God's presence regularly during the day, okay? Through reflection, through work, and we become co-creators In the divine community, we become co-creators in our family, in our lives. It's pretty cool because every breath you take, you are co-creating. And then holy leisure gives us time for holy reflection. And then studying and reading, read any books, scriptures, something you're interested in, holy works that were written. So monasticism reminds us of the powerful action and reflection model. Okay, you pray you work, you eat, but then remember, you have the steady time of reflection. You have the leisure time of reflection. And this helps you co-create, whether you become a writer, whether you become a gardener, whether you become a electrician, I don't care what you do. Everything is in that ebb and flow. They believe that you invest more in reflection because that's what makes you intelligent. That's what makes you you know, world aware. And then you're bound to do action in the world, create the world a better place by co-creating. So every monk comes to a common table. By the way, there's common bathrooms, common gardens, that common library, common dinners. These are places that in monastic communities that are community-based, that is where you continually meet, converse, talk, change, transform. People from the outside come in like I did. And as I taught and studied through the years, I got obsessed with monks and their work that transformed the world. These brilliant, quirky, strange, powerful spiritual characters were incredible beings. They lived bizarre, holy lives, and they lived out their lives in just really quirky ways. And I've always been kind of quirky, so um, I loved them. We called them characters in my life. You know, I grew up around a bunch of characters in a small town. And at dinner time, our family would just laugh and talk about characters. So these. Monks, these people that lived in these old communities all the way back in the year 200 AD, they were quirky, funny people. And it started out with people that left Rome and left all these places and went out into the desert. They were called the Desert Fathers because they believed they had to go out and live an ascetic life alone in a cave um, to discern God's, you know, listen to God and know what to do. So eventually, all of these holy people, these desert quote fathers, because that's what they were at that time, left. Rome and left places and went out to Egypt, into these caves and became called the Desert Fathers. Then the second stage was people like myself would go out and hear about these Desert Fathers and go, I'm having this crisis, I don't know what to do, uh, I need direction. So they would go out and do a pilgrimage to these Desert Fathers in these caves, and get get you know information, get um, guidance. So Abba Anthony, all of these unbelievable holy guys this is the truth, would have lines of people lined up in the desert to see them each day because they believed that they had a direct connection to God. So that was the first phase of monasticism. Then the next phase we call the Cenobitic phase, and that was started by a monk called Pacomius. And so Pachomius in 290 in Upper Egypt, he said, you know what, this, this is like cool and it's like radical. These people are living in these caves and, you know, people are coming in lines to see them. But I think the true growth is living in community. So he started what we call Christian Cenobitic, communal monasteries. And so people started gathering. He had 50, 100 people that would um, gather. And so he believed that the desert way was not the way that the first ones did. He said, we need to do this in community. So that's what started the second one. But before we leave this first group of um, desert fathers, these monks that went into the desert, one of my favorites I taught about, is was called Daniel. And he was called Daniel the Pillar. And I thought, why would anybody be called Daniel the Pillar? Well, this guy was hilarious. He would stand on a pillar. This is the truth. And he lived for 33 years on a pillar near Constantinople. Well, this is the truth. Thousands and thousands of people would line up. To ask him questions, to get guidance. So I got obsessed with this guy and went, Who in the world would do this with their lives? Hilariously. 33 years on a pillar. So then that kind of led me deeper into curiosity about these weirdos um, that were called monks that lived in deserts. And then some of them lived in, you know, Cenobitic or in uh, Pacomian communities. And, um, so anyway, that's kind of how my life started on this adventure and I was teaching it and I got excited because people think just all these characters, you know, are living today and they don't live in these weird places called monasteries. And one of my favorites, of course, is Thomas Merton. Many of you know him and have read his books. He wrote more than 50 books in a period of 27 years. They were about spirituality, social justice, quiet, pacifism during uh, wars, and uh, scores of essays and reviews. So he his work is enduring. He's one of the most famous people on the planet as far as spirituality. He lived in Gethsemane Monastery up in Kentucky, which I got so obsessed with him, I actually went and stayed at the monastery up there and talked to monks that had lived with him and visited his grave. And um, So anyway, uh, and if you haven't read anything by him, please, go look at uh, Thomas Merton's works. They're, they're absolutely amazing. And then another quirky guy that I fell in love with was a German mystic and a theologian and philosopher, and his name was Meister Eckhart. And, and if you're very spiritual, you may love this or want to know where to start. He was, the, he was radical, okay? He was, had a radical philosophy. He saw God in all. Now, remember, this is back in 1200. So um, he saw God in a flower, in a leaf, in a cloud, in a bird, and so, his mystical experiences he wrote about were very gorgeous and amazing i 'm telling you i i i, I don 't want to say worshiped him, but I loved his work and and taught about him passionately um, anyway, he had a practical spiritual philosophy and it gained him gave him a huge following back then. Well, guess what? he got t- tried by the Roman Catholic Church uh, and during the Inquisition he was tried for heresy, of course, he would be right. Because you don't have to go to church or mass or somewhere else. You see it in a mountain. You see God and everything. But anyway, so look look him up. I love Meister Eckhart. Another one, I was looking for women. I'm a feminist. Hildegard of Vinion. Oh, my God. I love her. St. Hildegard was one of the few prominent women in medieval history. She was one of the four women who was named a doctor in the church. Meaning that her doctrinal writings have special authority in the church to this day. So um, she was absolutely amazing. She was a doctor, a writer, a composer, a mystic, a visionary. She wrote, she was huge into medicine. She was a healer. She had a little hospital. I mean, can you believe this woman? Uh, She was a polymath, which means that a a polymath knows, um, that means you're a scholar and a thinker during Renaissance Enlightenment. in in science, technology, engineering, mathematics, art. Can you believe this? And arts. She was the junk. She was a genius. I love her. So that's another one you may want to check out. Hildegard of Binion. She was one of my favorites to teach about. And then someone I happen to know who's living now. Her name is Joan Chittister. Okay. She's a must read. Love her. Benedictine sister. She has over 50 books. Her her core, her tap root is spirituality. Okay. And she happens to be a Catholic. She happens to be a Benedictine sister. I love this woman. Um, her books have saved my life more than once. They deal with justice, equality, especially for women. Um, she again is one of the spiritual masters of our time and I love her. But, uh, those are just a few I wanted to touch on. Um, You know, Gregory of Nestorius was one of my favorites. Gregory of Nyssa, I'm in love with him still. Um, Anyway, but please, these patristic fathers and mothers or desert fathers and mothers, uh, learn about them. Please don't just isolate them into the Catholic Church. These were radical, cool people. Remember, there was only the Catholic Church. It was the government. It was the institution. There were no Protestants. We're talking about the pre-Reformation, okay? So these were holy people that emerged and did weirdo, cool things that were radical. And a lot of them, you know, got killed or tried for heresy and stuff. So I loved them. They gave their life for what they thought. Um, like I would for sure. Anyway, so I've had life-changing experiences because then I decided to go live in different monasteries and experience them. Now, again, I think of monasteries as Baskin-Robbins because, of course, we love ice cream in our house. 31 flavors. So, Monastery of the Holy Spirit is here in Conyers, Georgia. I I live in Atlanta, so it was close. I've spent so much time out there, I don't even want to tell you. Um, Brother Paul got me into bonsai. So, these Cistercians are very, very, again... They're non-denominational. Everybody goes there no matter what religion or no religion you are. And you go there, you eat with them, you break bread, you can take classes. Um, it, it, they're, these are these are just cool places of spirituality, at being at a quiet place. I used to sit by the lake in Conyers and... And, um, and and I sought refuge in these monasteries. Um, Sacred Heart Monastery, which is a woman's monastery, in Coleman, Alabama, Gethsemane, which is a monastery which is in Kentucky. I did, I sought refuge in monastery. I had, I had kids, I was working, had companies, going to school, my husband, and sometimes I just couldn't take it. I'm telling you, I would have a breakdown and nothing in our contemporary world gave me solace, especially churches. I did not need to be told how to feel and what to read. So I'd go to a monastery. They're beautiful, peaceful, quiet. Most of them have a spiritual director, if not all of them. And again, you can be any religion, no religion. It's a spiritual experience. My pivotal times, and I mean times of crisis, um, uh, sometimes I wanted a divorce, um, problems with my children, which at times I have a child with significant mental health challenges, I I thought I was going to lose my mind, times in my life when I was making career decisions, money decisions, and and so it was a refuge. Um, You can have a good old-fashioned nervous breakdown, or my husband, who's from South Georgia, they don't call them nervous breakdowns in South Georgia, they call them a good old-fashioned come-apart. So (laughs) I have had wonderful come-aparts at monasteries, and during those times, the nuns or the monks would take care of me. I'm serious, whether Uh, counseling, leaving me alone, walking with me, teaching me bonsai, cooking in the kitchen with with the nuns. I'm telling you, it literally saved my life. The rhythm, the rhythm that I had lost in my life because of the craziness in our world got restored to the core of my being in these monasteries. When I was getting my doctorate, I had to do research and lots of reflection. When I did my Masters of Divinity, you know, that was three years of it, four years in the doctor. Then I did clinical things afterwards, good Lord. Then I became a spiritual director, and then I became a Benedictine oblate. Can you believe this? Um, Kathleen, are you ever through? Anyway, I spent quite a bit of time in spiritual direction and spiritual classes at Sacred Heart Monastery in Coleman, Alabama. I fell in love with these Benedictine women. So they asked me to become an oblate. I didn't know what an oblate was. And it's, um, it's a lay person like myself who lives a normal life with, you know, family, children, all kinds of stuff. And I don't want to profess to be a monk or a nun. But you just live out your life in, you know, the normal world. But you become affiliated with that monastery. Okay? And we're considered an extended part of that mon- monastic community. Um, you know, we, like, I, you know, pray. Um, you know I go to events there I know the nuns um, I love them when I have a crisis I go back home to the monastery and they um, just like a wrinkled linen shirt they iron me back out hang me back up and send me out into the world just like your cleaners do anyway <laughs> they don't let me stay there and suck my thumb and take my blankie and go I'm not going home to my children and my husband no they send you right back out they just fuel you back up So anyway, I've had an amazing experience through the years, and I want to share this with you because please, 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 this is a haven not many people talk about nowadays, okay, in our contemporary society. So I had 500 acres a horse farm, all this stuff up there, 20-acre-like. So I decided to build my own uh, under the guise of the monks at Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky. They became my friends, uh, Brother Rene and then, And so he said, Why don't you just start a spiritual monastery down on your farm? I went, Okay. That's a great idea. So um, it was called Oak Haven, and I decided to just create a, quote, spiritual. I had 10 rooms, a bat, huge bathrooms. I had a community dining room overlooking the lake. Um, I developed curriculum from when I taught at Emory and uh, other colleges and also uh, from my research and studies and the great people I had known in my life. So anyway, um, and people could come up individually or in groups and actually have a spiritual, not a religious, monastic experience. I did that for many, many, many years. So my goal at O'Kaven was to teach our residents how to live a mindful life, balance, rhythm, happiness, wake up, pray, meditate, do whatever you do in the morning practice, then for a few minutes, then eat, stop, sit down. Your meal is holy, sacred. Next, go to work. Work hard. Co-create with your work into the world. Next, eat a beautiful dinner with healthy food. Afterwards, go for a walk. Movement. Then come back. Work maybe for an hour or two. Okay, remember, then comes study for at least an hour or two every single day. You, If you don't study and learn from other people, reading, watching, observing... Then how are you going to change your life? How are you going to grow? And then next is holy leisure. Holy leisure can be in the afternoon or in the evening. It's your time. But then remember, you eat. Everybody eats together. The bell rings. And it was at my monastery, too. We all got together. We ate. We dined. And then you surrendered to holy leisure in the night, which is walking, reading, getting together for a meditation class, whatever you do. But that's what I taught. And out of there... My first book I wrote was about this. So for real quickly, we're going to talk about, so you do that, did that at my monastery, but how do you create, how do you become an urban monk? And how does Beth and Susan and Bill and Tom do this in their home, in the world, whether you live in India, whether you live in Washington, D.C. in the United States, whether you live in China, I don't care where you live, you can become an urban monk yourself, which is pretty cool, right? You can even, like I do at my house here. I even have seven colored uh, shawls that I wear of the seven chakras. So I even when I'm doing my prayer in the morning or in the afternoon, I even, and when I work, I keep it at my desk. So I do rituals that keep me connected back to my urban monk, my own little monastery. Make your home, your condo, your apartment, whatever. It's your monastery, but you got to claim it. Okay. So here we go. Number one, the four roots to self-care. Okay, you need to do this because the first is is serenity, S-E-L-F is serenity, E is exercise, L is love, and F is food. Okay, that's like your four core roots to your tree of life, your tree, you're like an oak tree, baby. So whatever you're taking in, you're creating the fruit, the leaves, you're creating the acorns, and if you're not taking it in, you're not creating it. So four roots is what you have. First is S, is serenity. You have to do that root every day, several times a day. your breath is your first. First way to serenity, inhale to the count of four, exhale to the count of four, okay? And the way to, your breath is your gateway. It's your guide, it's your door into your soul. So how you know you're breathing correctly? Your lower abdomen blows up like a balloon. It's out right now. My belly is out. And then I've emptied that balloon with the exhale. Inhale. My belly's full and there's a balloon in my abdomen. I've exhaled. Do that for about three minutes. Okay? Set a timer on your, there's no excuse. Set a timer on your phone. Do it several times a day. Serenity. Okay? Serenity. Go outside. Listen to birds or get an app that has bird sounds, animal sounds, wind blowing, water falling, You can do that for your serenity along with your breathing. Anything that brings you to the core of your peace. Serenity. Several times a day. Come back home through the gateway to yourself. The breath. Okay. So develop a garden um, at Oak Haven. And right now in my home. I've moved to the city now. So I've created my own urban monastery here at my house. And I'm an urban monk. I claim it. I have gardens. I have bird feeders that I watch these gorgeous birds sing to me in the morning. I have meditation altars on all three floors of our home. I have sacred spaces, which are around my altars. Colors. I have certain rooms painted certain things, certain colors. I have certain sculptures, certain uh, statues, sound. I happen to like pure silence, and the only really big noises in our house are my dogs barking, my cat Uh, purring. uh, I do adore birds and I love uh, the sound of the ocean or rain. So on my television and on my phone, I do have intermittent waterfalls come in on certain uh, timers. I have rainfall. So please, anything that brings you serenity, please, it's up to you. Somebody's not going to do it for you. Exercise, every few hours go out and walk around your house, walk up and down the street, do some yoga stretches, lay on that floor and adore your body. It's given you all of these experiences and all this love and even suffering. Please, exercise only means move that precious, precious, beautiful body. Love, make sure, okay, so we're serenity, S, E, this is self-care, exercise. L is love. Who do you love? What do you love? I have a bonsai plant. I call it Brother Paul. He gave it to me 35 years ago, and when he gave it to me, it was already like 100 years old, and some master he had gave it to him. So I talk to Brother Paul. I love him. I channel him. and go, thank you. Please teach me, teach me, teach me. Um, I love all these ancient people I just told you about, Meister Eckhart and Hilda Bingen. I try to channel them. Harriet Tubman, I love her um and and even Betty White I have them in front of me right now I bought two mannequins one black and one white and so I have Harriet Tubman I try to uh love every day uh when I do podcasts and do my work and Betty White okay and then I love my present life my husband my children oh my god I've got the best friends my neighbors when I see them sometimes I just bubble up with joy and run up and hug them what do you love huh do you love flowers you should see my garden it is love so you got to bring love into your life. Call somebody, text somebody, write him a beautiful long letter. Buy some stationery and and every two times a week write somebody a note. It means the world to them. And last is food. Food is celebration. Ninety percent of people um, are uh, the word diet tests negative. I am not talking about diet. Food. Food is weddings, baptisms, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs. Uh, Ramadan celebration after it's over. Come on. Food is celebration. We were given food as a gift from God. Celebrate it. Love it. Just be aware and mindful of what you're putting in your mouth. Food, we have to have more reverent respect for food. When I see these commercials where people are jumping around eating, standing up, doing, uh, eating in front of the television on a, on a stupid coffee table, it's embarrassing, it's humiliating, and it has no dignity. please. Let's restore the dignity of food and eating. Okay. I learned that in the monastery also. So self-care, serenity, exercise, love, food, set your timer every so many hours, teach your children, do it with your friends, coworkers, love you. You can go to the Mindful Living Network. We have more information on all this stuff. You can write me a letter. Go to contact us, click it, and write me a note, and I will get back to you. Um, remember, also, it's our world. Please, please, okay? It's our world, and I want you to drink your life deeply, my friends. Okay, close your eyes, take a deep breath. Drink it like savoring water. Drink your life deeply, okay? Um, Okay, now I'm going to close with, remember, we have a great newsletter. Sign up for it. Please contact me again at Contact Us. Um, And remember, we are, you know, one people, one planet, one future. And uh, the Mindful Living Network, we are here to entertain, ed- educate, enlighten our world. Let's hold our world in our hearts and hands. Let's heal ourselves, our world. Please, and please share the Mindful Living Network with your friends, your family, community. If you have any ideas on how we can grow, what we can do, somebody we can partner with, please send it to me. Let's do this together, okay? Contact me at MindfulLivingNetwork.com or our, O-U-R, mlncom please. We have a meditation room, which is beautiful, and it's fabulous. It's called The Meditation Room. Click on it. We also have an app. You can go to any app store, and it's called Mindful Living Network app. It's got cool things, stress tips. It's got all kinds of inspirational quotes. Don't forget our newsletter, and please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Please, let's all grow together. We love you. This is the Mindful Living Network. This is the way I see it. I am Dr. Kathleen Hall. Blessings to you.